Welcome to the Wander Learn Show. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I interview Terry Repack. She is the author of Circling Home, What I Learned by Living Elsewhere. She has lived in Cote d'Ivoire, Tanzania, Switzerland. She's from the United States and has been all over the United States and has been all over Africa as well. She is raising children. Her husband is a physician who is helping Africans with diseases, including HIV. And she has quite a story to tell. Enjoy this episode. Don't forget to like and subscribe to it. Don't forget to join my Patreon group, which is at patreon.com slash ftapon. You can get rewards for as little as two bucks a month. It's a fantastic way to help make this thing possible as well as get rewarded for those efforts. I'm writing a chapter, at least one chapter per month on my book. And right now I'm just about done with the South African chapter. And now, Terry Repack. So you have lived in different parts of the United States, and you've, your first journey was overseas when you went to Austria. Tell us about that. So in college, I went to Salzburg, Austria to study German. And that was only two months, but it gave me a flavor for and a, a a longing for more travel. I had a URL pass and went all over Europe. I was probably in more than a dozen countries. Um, after that, after graduate school, I went to the UK and studied in London at the London School of Economics. And that just made me long even more for living overseas because that lasted about a year and a half. And it was like a tip of the iceberg. And at what point did you meet your husband, who is a physician? So when I went back to the U.S. from London, I, I actually went back and forth to London about six times trying to find a way to live there. And it never worked out. I did go back for a Ph.D. to the University of London and decided that wasn't for me. Sorry, I'm just curious. Why wasn't the Ph.D. for you? I got my master's degree over there and loved doing, loved living in London and loved doing the work for that degree. The The PhD was going to be a lot longer process. I had unstable housing. It was hard to make a living over there and go to school. But I knew I could do that in the U.S. because I had been a journalist and I had worked for Jack Anderson, the syndicated investigative reporter. So I knew I could get a job again in the US and while I was looking for a job I met my husband. Got it. Okay. And then and he started getting some job offers in Africa first. That was his first overseas assignment or not? Not quite that early. He was uh, a resident, so he was finishing his residency and he he wanted to go back to Africa because he was actually born there. So his parents were his father was a public health veterinarian, and he lived in Belgian Congo for 13 years. Hmm. And during that time, my husband was born, and so were his brothers. And so he had a real love for Africa already. It was he just built up. into his DNA, practically. Oh, it's, it, it's part of his DNA. In fact, hmm. whenever he meets you know, anybody from Congo in the U.S., they all call him mon frère, you know, because... <laughs> my brother. So, yeah... So anyway, he, when we were dating, was uh, at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health for his MPH, Master's in Public Health. 
And he, I knew he wanted to go overseas. I just didn't know it was going to be as uh, a young mother because we then got married, had kids. And as a young mother, he asked me to go to Ivory Coast. And this was in the 1990s, early 90s, when AIDS was at its worst in Africa. And so taking two small children there with malaria and AIDS as the leading causes of death was a real stretch. The only good news is that Cote d'Ivoire, at least because it's in West Africa, was not nearly as bad as it was in Southern Africa, where the HIV had up to 20, 25 percent of the populations in places like Swaziland. And, uh, you know, it was very high. But but still, it didn't help that it was, as you said, no uh, retrovirals, no kind of ways to combat. HIV was just a death sentence back then. Right. And, you know, in early 90s, we didn't even know for sure how it was transmitted, the, the HIV virus. So, yeah, you would worry about a scratch or things like that. By the end of our time there, we were in Ivory Coast for six years. And by the end of the time, it was so well understood that it really was hard to transmit. You wouldn't get it from just a scratch. Right. And so by the end of our time there, I was a real nervous mother in the beginning. By the end, we had a cook who, he was a, a part-time cook at our house, and he developed AIDS and um, wanted to keep working because he had a family of seven to support. And we had no problem allowing somebody with HIV in our kitchen cooking for our family because we knew, you know, it's very hard to transmit. That's and, true. Yeah. In fact, it's so hard nowadays. I mean, I think it's that you have to have sex many times, like hundreds of times, finally, for it to transmit. No, that's not. Uh, it, you could get it from a first time if, uh, you know, women can get it more easily than men, as, right. from what I understand. And if, you know, you have... It, it, it all depends on your health, you know. Mm. So anyway, you don't want to take a chance. Right. But, <laughs> but there are lots of good modes now for not getting it. There's a there's a prep pill that people can take if they're in a high. Um, a prep pill? Yes, it's called prep. That's the, mm. the name of the, the pill you can take if you're in a highly vulnerable group. Wow. say sex workers so they okay. can take this pill and it it uh really does diminish the chances of you i have no idea about that that's fascinating okay so yeah. let's go back to some of the hardest lessons you know the ones that took you a while to learn when you got there because i remember you know, i was reading in your book circling home you get there at the airport at cote d'ivoire all of a sudden you get hit like a furnace the heat the humidity and all that kind of stuff but what eventually took you maybe months to get used to or to learn? Two big factors, I think, kind of colored my the, my enjoyment of the first year in Ivory Coast. One was the fear factor. The, uh, you know, we were told that there were all these burglaries, home invasions, mm. carjackings. It was kind of a high crime city. It's kind of like South Africa has the same kind of image even today. Yes, yes. But it was less warranted in Abidjan. Right. And so I was full of fear driving to the grocery store, you know, encountering people on the street. You just were, very, you know, I was very guarded at first. And by the end of the our time there, after just a couple of years, you know, I would, I would pull up to an intersection where a lot of... Um, People with, you know, 
polio survivors and other people were panhandling. And I knew them by name and, and, you know, we would chat. And so I wasn't so full of fear. You learn how to connect with people. So that's a big thing. The other big factor is it really does take a while for your system to adjust in new countries, but especially in African countries. And so Westerners have to be very careful about drinking the water, um, washing vegetables, fresh vegetables like lettuce and, you know, spinach and that kind of thing in a sort of bleach and water bath to kill microorganisms because... I came down with all kinds of things when I first Did your first kids year. adjust better than you? No, they had things too, but they just didn't know how to voice, you know, their complaints as well okay. as I did. Okay. <laughs> so now they didn't you, come. You were also in Kenya, correct? Tanzania. Oh, Tanzania, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and one other country in I, I know you went to Switzerland too, but uh, right. just focusing on Africa. Those two countries are the countries we lived in. Uh, we traveled in every African country like you. You know, we mm-hmm. were everywhere, got all over the place and spent more time in, um, I'd say, West Africa, going to Benin, Togo, um, Nigeria, Senegal. Um, my husband has worked more recently in Southern Africa. So he has projects in Zimbabwe, uh, Mozambique. He was in South Africa for a long time. So he's back and forth to Zimbabwe quite often, but uh, I never lived there. Got it. What about the pros and cons of raising children in either Africa or in any kind of place that's quite different than the United States? Well, the the, the greatest pro is to open them up to other languages because we don't learn languages as children in the U.S. other than English. And, um, you know, I studied... French and Spanish in high school and college. And it's just nothing like being in a country and living there. So our kids are fluent in French. Uh, they're very versatile. They're they're resilient. When they move to another country or travel, they know how to talk to people. They're not afraid. They're not afraid of, you know, encountering people from other cultures. In fact, our daughter ended up living in London. So she's in London with a British partner and has two children. How funny. So she completed your dream. <laughs> she did. Very good. Yeah, yeah, she did. Yeah. Okay. And then what about the cons of raising children abroad? Um, can I give you a couple more pros? Sure, go for it. Um, the One of the great things for kids is the amazing community service opportunities they have for like when they're in international schools and the excursions they can take. So like my son was tutoring kids in a local public school in Dar es Salaam in Abidjan, uh, in Tanzania for his community service. And my daughter was reading to children in a cancer hospital. And so they saw so much. I mean, they they will never unsee some of the images they saw with, you know, the poverty and the and the illness and that kind of thing, the suffering. But then for excursions, you know, they would go off for fall break and for spring break, like my son climbed Kilimanjaro with his classmates on a spring break. And my daughter learned to dive in Zanzibar. So they just have an amazing array of opportunities for encountering other cultures, which I think is why you're there. 
I, I see that your children are fulfilling your dreams because I know you want, tried to get up Kilimanjaro, but you came just short. And you tried to live in London and you came just short. And your there daughter you and your son are just completing all your dreams. <laughs> They're checking off those boxes. I, I guess I have more to be grateful for. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank um, you. But what about the cons? Come on. Well, the cons, um, I think that it's harder for them to get a sense of home when they're young. They kind of start, they identify home with your with their parents. So I had to be very um, astute about finding my sense of home as soon as I got to a country, just so they, and making home for them. But then when we, you know, left, so we, we left Abidjan, Ivory Coast, when my son was nine and my, my daughter was six. And those are very, you know, nine is a very vulnerable age for kids to return to the U.S. It was so hard. My son still, to this day, is in his 30s now, calls it the hardest year of his life. And it's because he went to a school in Atlanta that was a great school, but there weren't many kids who had lived overseas, and particularly in Africa. So, you know, there was a little bit of bullying. People called him Africa boy. And, um, you know, he, it, he didn't know how to, he didn't know the games American kids played. He didn't know the music they listened to, mm -hmm. the shows they watched. So it really took him a year to get his feet on the ground. You know, much more so than me. I landed in Atlanta and had immediate connections. I made friends and started a writing group and... So for kids, it's hard. It's hard to be mis displaced several times throughout their youth. Somebody's listening to this, Terry, and they're saying, gosh, I want to live like Terry. I want to be able to live abroad. What tips would you give them? So I would say uh, just get the fear factor behind you and say, okay, I'm not going to give into that and learn as much as you can before you go about the culture. This is what I did when I went to Tanzania. In Ivory Coast, I started off the first year afraid. In Tanzania, I hit the ground running. I learned as much as I could about, you know, Maasai and Swahili language. And um, I just wanted to join everything when I got there. So I jumped in with both feet, uh, found volunteer opportunities. I was teaching English to... Um, children in a local public school. Um, I became chair of the Corona Women's Society. Sounds like a, a, a beer club, but it's actually a, a worldwide women's society. Actually, it sounds like you guys actually engineered the coronavirus. That's what it sounds like. The oh, Corona my goodness. Society. I never made that connection. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I know. You're patient zero. Yeah. No, 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 no. Don't do that. It's forget the Wuhan lab. It's your lab, Terry. Yeah. <laughs> your no, Corona lab. <laughs> your Corona club. Well, well, we'll be open for investigation now. Thanks to you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, the, another tip I would say is just give yourself plenty of time and find ways to de-stress and just not rush. You know, so you're going to be lonely for a couple of weeks or months. So you're going to be sick a little bit. <laughs> I'm not making it sound great, but, you know, find ways to de-stress. For me, um, it was yoga and meditation, mm -hmm. and it just helped a lot to to get refocused, recentered, 
and then go out and try to you know talk to people outside your gate it was uh, a, a much richer experience after connecting with people and learning the guy's name who guarded the house next door and talking to him and you know knowing that he was watching out for my kids and for us right um what about any kind of regrets that you have um in tandem with the tips i would say one of the biggest regrets is that i did let fear kind of influence some of how many my... months did it take in ivory coast it took me about i'd say five months mm-hmm before I really made, I made some of my best friends there. I'm still in touch and they still come and visit friends from that time. That's 30 years ago. And so it was only after I made close friendships that I kind of looked at, looked to other women who knew the culture, knew how to navigate things much better than I did. And so I kind of attached myself to these people that were real aficionados in and and totally comfortable living in the cultures there so other regret uh that i didn't stay longer in tanzania and go to mozambique because i i understand from other cdc families that centers for disease control that's who we were overseas with um that mozambique is just amazing people love living there and we loved living in Tanzania. I wish we had stayed more than three years. Right. Um, it's it is. I've spent about uh, about a year in Tanzania or so. Oh. So I know what you're saying. Um, what about what surprised you about Africa and specifically, you know, whether it be, you know, for example, you were in Cote d'Ivoire. You felt yourself like I'm an expert at Africa by now. By the time you went to Tanzania, and then all of a sudden, boom, something that was surprising that hit you. Or maybe it was one of your trips to Sudan or to wherever you know to uh, Kigali, you know, wherever. That all of a sudden, something else about the continent that just surprised you. Because I'm trying to write the unseen Africa. These are parts of Africa that we just don't think about or see. So, what would you say to that? Um. First of all, how diverse it is. I mean, you it's like saying, what, did, what, what do you think about North America? I mean, it's just, there's so many different countries. And even within countries, there's so much uh, diversity. So in Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, the North is a, a Sahel country. It's like uh, very Desert. dry. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the South is a tropical rainforest. And so, and you have very different people. In fact, there was a civil war because they're such different people. The people from the North tend to be Muslims. People from the South tend to be Christians. So there was all that diversity. Culturally, it's so different. I mean, even within Ivory Coast, there are like 60 different languages and cultures. Um, but from East to West Africa, in, in East Africa, in Tanzania, totally different landscapes different people very mellow kind of swahili culture is just so different from the cultures we encountered in ivory coast so it was surprising to learn about those differences but what kind of really surprised me as well is how open and interested people were in us when we showed an interest in them that was true anywhere didn't matter where we traveled I have a story in my book about going to Senegal. We were just there for a week. That, that's all. And 
we were we hired a taxi driver to take us to a beach town about an hour and a half outside of Dakar. And on the way, you know, we saw all these goats on the road and couldn't understand why the car was, you know, bumper to bumper because of these goats. And the taxi driver told us it was Tabaski. And so all these goats were going to be slaughtered soon. And he said, as a matter of fact, my family is going to be celebrating this afternoon. Would you like to come? And so we went and had the most amazing experience. My son, who I, I mentioned had a very difficult year moving back here at age nine, remembers that as a, a highlight of our years in Ivory Coast, because he could run around with the village kids and with our hosts, children, speaking French, playing with them. People just, you know, were so kind and open when we showed an interest in them and asked questions. Yeah, it's so true. By the way, when you talked about Tabaski, which is a Muslim festival, annual festival, where they do slaughter the goat, I happened to be in Burkina Faso, and I spent about a month in Burkina Faso when, when that festival was going on, and everything seemed like wonderful all over the country. And then, like a couple months after I left, it erupted into like some sort of civil war, effectively. Yes. And so my question to you was, you were in Cote d'Ivoire in the 1990s, and just yeah. a couple of years after you left, suddenly a civil war erupted in, that was pretty serious in Cote d'Ivoire. Did, I didn't see the Burkina Faso, even though I was there months before, I didn't see, it. didn't feel tensions or anything like that. It just caught me out of blue. I felt like such an idiot. It's like, I think I'm kind of immersed in this culture and I'm obviously missing some subtleties because this civil war erupted. I didn't see it coming. Did the same thing happen to you in Cote d'Ivoire or did you see their civil war brewing even while you were there? No, we didn't see it. And it really was only a couple months after we left because we mm -hmm. left in uh, July of 99 and the civil war started in December, the first coup. And, and frankly, I think a lot of these conflicts, and we do many people from Burkina Faso, they're such gentle, wonderful people. And I just feel like these conflicts start at the top. It's generals and people, you know, trying to grab power. And then they get as many followers as they can. So no, we didn't see it coming, even though we did sort of live in a state of tension while we were in Ivory Coast, because whenever there was a, a national election, they thought that something could happen. And so the embassy would tell us, be prepared for evacuation around, you know, the upcoming elections. And so we had to have bags packed and and be ready for that. But it's, it is really sad. Ivory Coast descended into civil war for about 10 years. And again, I just can't help feeling that most of that comes from the top. And it's not people that want to, you know, that hate each other. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It also is telling, because I came at the end of the civil war. I came in 2013 or so when I first came to Ivory Coast. And to me, it was still a little bit of the remnants you know, at that point, they were already rebuilding and, and things are much better yeah. now. Um, yeah. But it makes me wonder about our own country, you know, like or any country for that matter. If, like we're oblivious living amongst them and we don't see it coming. Could all of a sudden civil war erupt in the United States from, you know, from one month to the next or one year to the next? It, it, it's, it's, it's remarkable how these things happen. Now, your book, uh, Circling Home, who did you write it for? friends and other people who, you know, it's just um, a small window I was offering on 
a world that you won't see otherwise. You you don't get the picture of, you know, the faces behind the statistics about how many people are dying of AIDS, you know, how many people live in poverty, how many people, you know, are suffering in the rest of the world. And so this kind of is a way to put names and faces on some of the the rest of the world that we hear about but don't really have an insider view. Like you're trying to offer an insider view of Africa too. Yeah, I'm failing miserably. But in your case, you can also show the other side as well, which is that you hear all the headline news, which is usually bad news. And then at the same time, you can see some of the joy, the ever, you know, the friendliness and, and just the camaraderie and, Absolutely. and, and the beauty and, and that there is actually a large amount of peace in Africa, like 99% of the, conf, of the continent is actually at peace. There's only right. a tiny, tiny portion. So there is, they're dealing with the poverty. It does exist. There are, there are uh, diseases that are really burdensome. But at the same time, there's that flip side of things, which you obviously lived and you wrote about in Circling Home, which is, hey, life goes on and things are pretty good in many other respects as well. And, and don't people don't live. Yeah. And most people don't live in huts and there are right. lions and, and elephants prowling around in your, you know, your backyard. I mean, it's it's as modern as the U.S. in many ways, most most cities in Africa. Yes, and that's the key point, cities, because uh, once you go to the villages, then all of a sudden, sometimes the electricity may no longer be there, or if it is, it's intermittent and things like that. Some modern plumbing may go out the, you know, and, and you're going to an outhouse. But, certainly, but they still have cell phones. Yes, you have. Everybody right. has cell phones. That's right. There are more cell phones than people in Africa, that's for sure. Um, anyway, Terry, thank you so much for coming on the WanderLearn show. Uh, tell everybody how they can find out more about your book, because there are several circle circle circling home books out there so how can they find yours this is the only one that says what i learned by living elsewhere and it's the only one by terry repack and you can get it on bookshop.org or amazon or best just at your local bookstore support your local bookstore best way to do things excellent and is there a online do you have either a website or I do have a website with lots of um, articles sort of that spun off from the book. In fact, I have an article in the Seattle Times coming out next week. Great. Uh, It's just my name, terryrepack.com. Wonderful. Terry, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much and best of luck with your book. Thank you, Francis. And that ends this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we've talked about, go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. F Tapon is always my social media username. My website is ftapon.com. Do you want to leave me an anonymous voicemail where you can make a comment or ask a question? Then go to speakpipe.com slash ftapon. Furthermore, if you'd like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. Now, five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the WanderLearn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.